Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to fully appreciate how much work goes in to seemingly meaningless text in board games. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Gray Fox Games. This week, we're talking about flavor text. First, we discuss a couple games we've played recently, like Castles of Tuscany and Horrified. Then, we talk about how publishers sometimes spice up their games by adding a little flavor. Flavor text, that is. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word flavor. And now, here are your hosts, Andy and Crystal. One quick announcement before we hop into the main episode, and that is that two days from today, assuming you're listening to this episode on the day it releases, is the next Tabletop Live Network event, and we are kicking off the 24-hour board game streaming marathon this weekend, so you will be able to catch our stream right after the pre-show at noon Pacific time on Saturday, March 27th. We will be sponsored by Czech Games Edition, CGE, and we're going to be playing Letter Jam and Codenames Duet, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you tune in for that. And it's not just us. It's 12 streamers, 24 full hours of board game streaming on Twitch. So you can go to tabletoplivenetwork.com for all of the details uh, about all of the streams that are happening this weekend. And I have it on good authority that Dave and Ilka from Palooza are playing the new version of The Crew. And I'm not at all jealous. Not one tiny bit. <laughs> Speaking of TLN, last Tabletop Live Network, Crystal and I played Horrified together, and that's actually a game that we're going to be talking about now. (laughs) Yeah! This is the second episode in a row where we're reviewing the same games because we played them. Well, we we played one of the two of these together, and the other one we just both played. Yeah, yeah. But yes, we, we both got review copies of Horrified from Robinsberger, and we got to play them together on stream. Um, or we got to play it together on stream for Tabletop Live Network. Um, and Horrified is a cooperative game published in 2019, designed by Prospero Hall. And it has like classic Hollywood monsters from like old monster movies like Dracula, Frankenstein, that type of stuff. And you are working together to try to defeat the monsters and save the city. Yeah, it's really <laughs> fun. And it does something unique in that there are a bunch of monsters that come with the mm-hmm. game and you choose which monsters you're going to be battling and you can choose a variable amount of them as well. So if you want an easier game, you can pick two monsters or three, or if you want a really hard game four. So even though mechanically, I would say this is about as complex as most cooperative games, it's a little more interesting, at least from my point of view, because of the variability of the setup. Yeah. I I only played it the once, but I do want to play it more. Um, I'm looking forward to play the hard mode because we played on normal mode, I think with three monsters yeah, uh, which that's which, normally pretty hard for people, and we yeah, but crushed we won. it. Easy, <laughs> easy, easy game. <laughs> but yeah, it. Um, but yeah, basically, you're moving around, picking up items, and the items, depending on what monsters you have, you have to do different things with the items, which was kind of thematic because, like, for the for Dracula, you have to go and kill his uh, coffins, which you have to use a lot of red items to like attack them. You have to go to the coffins and use the items to attack them and then and then you have to go kill dracula and then for the uh the river the creature one. from the black lagoon <laughs> yes that one i'm not familiar with the horror monsters because i don't watch horror movies but um that one there's like a boat that you have to go 
on a river and so you have to discard colored items to like move forward on the river and then when you get to the end you have to like defeat the creature so different things depending on which monsters are out which is interesting, I think. Right, like the tasks you have to complete mm -hmm. are different per monster. And all of the monsters have different special abilities as well. And some of the monsters have really annoying abilities. Like <laughs> Dracula's special ability, he can move the active player to his space. And we lucked out hard in that Dracula's special ability. I don't know, did it ever trigger? It might have triggered once. Yeah, I don't think it ever triggered. I don't anymore. think it did. I think we lucked out hard because that one, <laughs> especially if you're on the opposite side of the board and like about to do a bunch of cool things and he moves you, it's so <laughs> frustrating. We also had a really funny moment. There's villagers in the game that you have to rescue because otherwise the monsters will attack the villagers if they have the ability to. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of move the villagers with you and we ended up with a whole bunch of villagers all like we kept picking them up and walking with them and we had a like a crowd of villagers yeah. <laughs> we were walking around the board it felt like a tour group like we needed a little flag <laughs> to hold up and be like okay villagers this way <laughs> yeah that was funny i liked it i like cooperative games i actually started off the hobby like playing arkham horror a lot which is an old cooperative game and this kind of reminded me of that a similar feeling because there's different big bad monsters in Arkham Horror there's just one bad monster that you're fighting but like it has different powers and stuff that happens and so it, it gave me kind of like reminiscent of playing Arkham Horror in the early days nice <laughs> and this one is neat because even though it is about monsters it's it's family friendly like there yeah. isn't any explicit or really scary content in the yeah. game so you could easily play this with kids I mean obviously kids of certain ages are still going to be afraid of the concept of a monster. So, you know, take that for what it is. You, if you're a parent, you know what your kids limits are, but I would say for most kids, this would be completely fine and really fun mm -hmm. to play. Yeah. And it could theoretically suffer from quarterbacking because information yeah. is basically all public. So if you are a person who does not like that type of thing in cooperative games, be aware of that. But for me, assuming you're playing with people who are just trying to have fun and not necessarily, you know, drive the entire experience, I think this is a yeah. really great cooperative game. I've played it a handful of times now, and I really enjoy this one. This is one that I think I would definitely be more inclined to bring to the table at this point in my gaming career over some of the other cooperative games that I used to play more often, like Forbidden mm -hmm. Island or Pandemic. And again, nothing against those games, but I just, this feels more interesting to me, both theme-wise and mechanically, than some of those older cooperative games. Mm -hmm. I mean, you all have heard me talk about how much I love Prospero Hall <laughs> at length, and this is no exception for me, so... Then the next game we're talking about is also from Robinsberger. Uh, they also sent review copies to both of us, and that is Castles of Tuscany. I know a bunch of our listeners were really excited to hear our thoughts on this one. This is the sequel follow-up? I don't know exactly what to call it to Castles of Burgundy. Um, the games do bear some similarity, but you obviously do not need to have played one to play the other. So Castles of Tuscany is designed by Stefan Feld, came out in 2020, and it is a tile-laying game where you are collecting cards and collecting tiles and then playing tiles down to your board, which will trigger special abilities, which will allow you to gain more cards and more tiles. It's like a lot of Euro games. You pick up things to get other things to allow you to get the first things again, and then it's just cyclical to some degree, which makes it sound really boring. And I will admit, thematically, it is! 
There's, I don't, what's the theme of this? It's, here, hold on, let's go to BGG. Uh, the beautiful, the beautiful Tuscany region in the 15th century <laughs> is the home of the Italian Renaissance. As influential princes, the players make creative decisions to build their region into a flourishing domain. Okay, it doesn't feel like any of that, for the record, <laughs> like, at all. But if you enjoy point salad style games which Steffenfeld is kind of known for things where there are lots of different ways to get points mm -hmm. and you kind of decide which things you want to do um, this one isn't as complex as a lot of other Feld games things like Trajan or other things like that this is a lot simpler it's really easy to learn and I really enjoyed it I actually want I've played it a couple of times now and I really want to keep playing it but I know that I might be alone in that <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I played it once, two players with Toby. For the record, we didn't particularly like Castles of Burgundy uh, because I don't like dice. We we both don't like dice euros that much, um, but this one has cards instead, which is slightly better, I think. But still, it was a quick light game with super quick turns, and I like that about it. But oh yeah, the quick turns. Um, I mean, on your turn, yeah. you either draw cards, reserve a tile, yeah. or place a tile, and that's yeah. basically it. And that's it. Yeah. But like. The scoring was so weird because there's three rounds with the scoring at the end of each round. And during the round, you get points on a green track for all the things you do. But then you transfer those over to the red track at the end of each round. And then the green track doesn't reset. So it, it seems like the score is snowballing and it's hard to catch up. So that happened. <laughs> so like, even if it's not a snowball, like it, it definitely seems like one because it just keeps compounding on it. And it's made, the scoring was made that way to do that. So that right. was kind of weird. It is strange. And I haven't played it enough times to really be able to suss out why it's like that. And I've also only played it two players. And so I mm -hmm. think I would like to be able to play this with its full player count, which probably is four. Let me look. Yes, yeah, four players. I would like to play it at that to see how that affects things. But I will say that, like, it did seem that if somebody was behind in one round when we were playing it, often the other player was kind of set up to earn more points that they hadn't earned yet and would usually get ahead the next round. So it's interesting because we kind of went back and forth to some degree. Okay. Um, but I can't guarantee that that would always be the case. So... Yeah. And we were new to yep. the game, too, so we're not playing optimally. There's a whole bunch <laughs> of factors there. Like, this might be one of those games that once you know it really well, it could get really good or really bad, depending. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, well, in mine, I was ahead in the first round, and then I just stayed ahead because we got, like, around the same points in the other rounds. Okay. So, yeah, because, so, yeah. like, like, so there are there no there's way ways to score extra points based on the, the areas on your board that you complete. And so for mm -hmm. us, I was playing with Kathy... And, like, when she would be ahead of me, often I was, like, one tile away from completing, like, a larger area mm -hmm. that would give me more points. Uh, when you start the game, you get three boards that you put together to form your singular board. Um, yeah. And you can arrange those to some degree how you want. So that allows you to kind of manipulate things to some degree as well. Everybody ends up with the same number of hexes, but their orientation and their placement against one another can be how you choose it to some degree so mm -hmm. I there's a lot of nuance here that I haven't been able to dig into all I know is that for me it felt good when I was playing it like mm -hmm. I enjoyed the quick turns 
the simple mechanisms. Like, this is the type of Euro game that I tend to enjoy more. Like, the really mm-hmm. complex, heavier Euros that are more your thing, I don't always resonate with. Sometimes I tend mm-hmm. to bounce off of those. Like, you taught me Trajan at BlitzCon a few years ago. And I didn't dislike Trajan, but I also didn't really, like, it didn't sing for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas this game is more in my wheelhouse. It, it was enjoyable as a quick game, but but, like, after we finished playing, it's not something that I would want to play like i i'm not excited to play it i don't want to i it's not something i would ask to play but like if someone wanted to play it i would be fine playing with it and i'd enjoy playing it but like nothing will make me want to bring it out to the table and be like oh do you want to play castles of tuscany so yeah there for me it was enjoyable but like there was nothing memorable about nothing it compelling about it yeah like nothing compelling about it yeah whereas i I'm kind of excited to play it more and dig into it more and get better at it. So this one will be hitting the table for me again in the future. Needless to say, Castles of Tuscany was a win for me and a meh. meh. Me. That's what I was going to say, like a meh for you. And yeah. So, but we do want to thank Ravensburger for sending over both Horrified and Castles of Tuscany to us. We love Ravensburger and not just because they published Strike, one of our favorite games of all time. <laughs> So for today's topic, I don't think we've discussed this before, but I actually haven't checked. But I, I don't I actually talk- think many board game podcasts have discussed this one. This is oh, not a topic yeah. that I've seen come up often yeah. or ever. Yes. But anyways, the topic is flavor text in board games, which I guess happens more in uh, card games than board games, which might be why board game podcasts don't talk about it that much. So what but, is flavor text, Ambie? Yes, what, what is flavor text? It's text that tastes good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I didn't actually expect that. That was really good. <laughs> it's uh, text that doesn't have anything to do like with the actual game play, but adds theme to the game, right? Yes, it adds flavor or, flavor, you know, like yes. spice. It, it, it adds... <laughs> it, ambiance theme (laughs) what yeah what have you and I think that that already kind of brings up something that could be considered not controversial but like when is flavor text just flavor text and when is flavor text really adding to the mechanics of a game also because I think flavor text as it is generally defined can do both things either it can do nothing Mm -hmm. completely and it can also theoretically serve the game in other ways but I think usually you don't have to read it. It's usually like italicized at the bottom of something and people can skip over it. And probably a lot of people do while they're playing games, but some people enjoy reading them. So like, do you like reading flavor text in games? If they I, I, What's funny is I do tend to, if it's just like flavor text on a card that is mm-hmm. below or smaller than other text that has to do with the mechanics, I tend to not notice it most of the time. But mm-hmm. when I do notice it and read it, I almost always enjoy it. Always. Yeah. Like it's I like I get great moments of joy from the flavor text in a lot of games. Me too. So yeah, <laughs> I'm the same way. Like a lot of times I don't notice it or like gloss over it um, if I'm in the middle of playing the game. But then if I do read it, it's usually pretty good. Or like humorous. A lot of flavor text is funny. You might know that I played Android Netrunner a lot <laughs> back in 2014 or something. And that's a, it was a living card game. But yeah, a card game. So it has a lot of different cards and each card has flavor text in it. 
So for that, I would read the flavor text maybe like the first time I see it or something, but then I don't read it while I'm playing the game. Usually I just like, you read it when, when you're looking at your deck and stuff, but not actually during the gameplay. So do you have any examples of flavor text that you particularly like? Yes, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> but, so, but wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Netrunner, it, one of my favorite or a couple of my favorite cards were there were these cute little ice cards. Like one of them was called Pup and one was Quandary. So Quandary is flavor text I like. The, it's like a, a baby version of a bigger card. <laughs> so so like there was a bigger card called Enigma that has two subroutines and those are things that are bad for the other person. So Quandary is like a baby version of Enigma and it's it's sub it's a uh, flavor text says it wants to have su- two subroutines when it grows up. So like it, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's cute. You don't you don't know that it's a baby version of Enigma, but the art looks like a baby version of it. And so like if you know the other card <laughs> and like the subroutine is the same, but it's just the two of them. It's it's pretty cute. Yeah, that is cute. And then there's another one called uh, Curtain Wall that like the mechanisms of Curtain Wall, it has a bunch of subroutines that just end the run, end the run, end the run. And then the <laughs> the flavor text says, end the game. Just kidding. <laughs> so that that's kind of funny. <laughs> but I think the funniest flavor text on a card in a game that I thought of is um in millennium blades which itself is kind of a parody of collectible card games like millennium blades is a game about a collectible card game it's a (laughs) yeah it's it's hard to describe (laughs) yeah to people that haven't played it before but yeah it simulates building a deck and playing a collectible card game and like finding rare cards too yeah but but it has a lot of parodies of Yu-Gi-Oh and like other collectible card games and shows and stuff but one of the cards is Exalted, Exaltius the Untenable. And it has a lot of flavor text, like, by combining the powers of the great Millennium Masters, blah, 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 blah. Four lines of flavor, flavor text. And then at the bottom of the flavor text, in smaller flavor text, in parentheses, it says, while your opponent reads the flavor text, quietly steal their deck and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. Yeah. Like, not just quietly steal their deck, but also sell it. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's pretty funny. So there's a lot of good flavor text in card games, I think. <laughs> I would say there are some board games that have good flavor text too, often mm-hmm. on cards, but not always. Yes. If we're talking about cards in board games, Ex Libris is probably one of the mm-hmm. best examples because all of the cards in Ex Libris contain library books and every mm-hmm. single book has a unique title and they're all you could have gibberish or lorem ipsum or anything on those books Mm -hmm. basically like the 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 names of the books have nothing to do with the mechanisms of the game necessarily but they're so much fun to read (laughs) i really really adore them yeah it's great when when games have like little things like that that (laughs) that just make it more fun to look at the cards (laughs) and i think stuff like that does kind of in some places, in some games, it brings the theme to life more. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. kind of immerses you in the world a little bit more. Or for some games, it can actually really like bring the mechanisms and the theme together. And mm-hmm. y'all are probably not going to be surprised to hear me mention Battlestar Galactica here. But in the Battlestar Galactica board game, a lot of the crisis cards or almost all of them, have quotes from the TV show on Mm -hmm. them and a picture. 
And so the, the crises that you encounter in the board game kind of mirror real world or real world, <laughs> you know, real events from the fictional TV show. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it ties the, the mechanisms of what the crisis you're solving into like, but, but Battlestar Galactica is so cool because that flavor text, it just adds stuff for people who know the TV show. But you, mm-hmm. if you don't know the TV show, it doesn't like, you don't, t- it doesn't take away from the mechanisms to not know that stuff. I've always said that like base game Battlestar Galactica has no spoilers except for one big one for season <laughs> one of Battlestar Galactica. Now, once you get into the expansions, you've got spoilers galore in the flavor text. So I've told people that haven't watched the TV show, like if you play this game with expansions, don't read the flavor text because you're going to have some major plot points spoiled for you. But I enjoy it because like it, it kind of brings up the tension and the feeling and the emotions mm-hmm. in those moments of those crises. And you were talking about flavor text helping with mechanics and theme together. And I don't know if this is actually like flavor text or because it's in the rule book, but... You're done about to talk about Dungeon Pets, aren't yes, you? Yes, <laughs> yes. In the Dungeon Pets, the rules, <laughs> like they give explanations for all of the mechanics uh, based on the theme. So like, for example, when, when a pet grows old and you don't buy it, it goes to the farm. So it gets removed from the board and then it says like a meat shows up at the vegetable stand and you add a meat to the vegetable stand but it's unrelated and it says that in the rule book which which is wait the meat shows up at the vegetable stand or at at the at the meat stand sorry oh i was like (laughs) at the the food stand (laughs) food stall okay yeah but yeah it says they're they're unrelated right not not related the animal goes to the farm and meat shows up at the food stand (laughs) unrelated Yeah, and it, but it has like explanations for all the rules. But yeah, I like that one. That might be my favorite of the rules. <laughs> there are also a lot of games that have flavor text that teach you things, which mm-hmm. in concept to me sounds boring. But in practice, I love, I adore, I cannot get enough of. Um, a couple good examples of this would be Wingspan, which has information about all of the different birds on the bottom of the oh, bird cards. Mm-hmm. And like, some of those birds are fascinating to learn about. And I'm just like, wait, what? They do what? Like, I love reading about the birds. I always mm. read the flavor text in Wingspan. Another one that I haven't played in a long time is World's Fair 1893, which has like factoids about the World's Fair on the cards. And mm. so, and the World's Fair is also fascinating to learn about. These are the types of things that like as an adult, if you haven't yeah. learned them already, you're probably not going to stumble across them elsewhere unless you go looking. And so that's the kind of stuff that I love to see in a game. I'm like, oh, I learned a cool fact that I could theoretically share with a friend over dinner or just have in my head for trivia night. You know, like I like mm-hmm. learning new things. Maybe I'm unique in that regard. But this kind of stuff really like scratches a good part of my brain. And I'm like, this is really neat. Did you know this? Yeah. yeah and like speaking of learning things, when I when I played the couple of war games, a couple months ago like those have flavor text on all the cards that i talk about or maybe not on all the cards but they have it in the rule book going into depth of each of the cards and the events and stuff saying the actual history of what happened and why that card is there <laughs> some of them even have like a separate rule book that just ha- goes over the history just like a history book <laughs> so if you want to learn more about it then you, you can learn more from that and so that's that's pretty neat that is really cool 
So we actually put out a call on our Discord, which if you haven't joined the Board Game Blitz Discord, what are you doing? You should join. There will be a link in the show notes to that. But yeah, we asked people in our Discord their thoughts on flavor text, some of their favorite examples and why they do or don't like it. And we got a lot of really good comments. I apologize. We're not going to be able to go over all of them. Generally, the sentiment that our fans shared was most people don't seem to necessarily care about flavor text. Not that they dislike it, but just that it's not that important to them. But we got a couple of interesting comments here specifically. Our friend Nick Baker said, I'm going to bring up Forgotten Waters flavor text, not from the story parts, but from the locations. If there's flavor text to be read, it usually has a hint or two on what may be important in that location. That actually applies to a bunch of different games, probably that I'm not thinking of, where sometimes the flavor text does give you information, but not as obviously as you might think. Like it's not blatantly telling you something. It's just hinting at something. Mm -hmm. And so that that's kind of interesting. And then Joe Sando said, I'm the person who always wants to hear at least a sentence of flavor text before learning the rules. So I know what world I'm going into if there's a world. And I think that's an interesting point. Like for people who do like theme in games, Mm -hmm. sometimes just digging straight into the mechanisms, it's hard to wrap your head around a game. But if you can kind of get a little bit of that flavor, that theme, that the emotional connection to a world, that can sometimes help you connect with the actual mechanisms better too, even if there is Mm -hmm. no direct relation. Yeah, and I think it also depends on the type of game too. Like uh, Atticus said, flavor text can increase immersion and explain the setting or world, but I usually only get this benefit if the game is designed in such a way to make players care about the setting or world. For example, a plain-looking muted color Euro game with some added flavor text about the Middle Ages does absolutely nothing for me personally. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, yeah, I'm similar. Like If the game is built to be more thematic and has flavor text, that adds to it. But like if... It's like Castles of Tuscany or something where <laughs> it has flavor tags. They're like, okay. What? Right. Like when I read that description from the yeah. BGG page, it's like that doesn't do anything for us. <laughs> uh, we had multiple people, Hornist, James Brazil, and Zin Banana Slug all mentioned that they love the flavor text in Clank in Space with all the pop culture references. And Clank in general was mentioned as well as having good flavor text. And I think that's pretty common in games that are parodies to some degree. Mm-hmm. Like that's not necessarily uncommon to hear. And then I was doing a little bit of research online and I found an old Reddit thread about flavor text. And I found the most baffling comment, Ambi, that I wanted mm-hmm. to read out loud just to get your opinion on. <laughs> okay. So the user from Reddit is my pet mummy. This was five years ago. <laughs> In a thread about flavor text, they said, For my group, it's the flavor text that really makes the game. If we aren't going to read the text, we might as well pick up something more abstract that will likely have better mechanics. I was like, what? (laughs) Like, you're telling me that just because a game contains flavor text, it's mechanically likely to be less solid than a game without flavor text? I just... I know that this this is not necessarily a, a true statement or representative of any wide population of gamers, but it just like blew my mind and I had to read it out loud. The flavor text makes the game. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, for me, the flavor text never makes the game. It adds to it in a big way sometimes. Yeah. Well, maybe in like a story game where the game is the flavor text, but like that, then that's not really flavor text. That's just the text. Right. <laughs> 
We did get a couple of comments in our Slack channel as well, which you can join if you back our Patreon for a $1 or more per month. Go to patreon.com slash boardgameblitz to do that. But Josh agrees with you, Ambi. He likes flavor text in historical games like Twilight Struggle or Coin Games, where it gives reasoning for why the card does what it does. So that's good. And Charles Albrecht said that his group always cracks up at the luck card from Kill Dr. Lucky that says, Rat Poison? I love Rat Poison. (laughs) I have no idea what that card does, but I love it too now. (laughs) So then the last point that I wanted to bring up is when does flavor text become not flavor text? For example, in a game like Betrayal at House on the Hill, after you win or lose the game... There is text that you can read. It technically has nothing to do with the mechanisms because the game has already quote unquote ended at that point, but it helps wrap up the story. So is that text flavor text? Because it's not completely pointless, but it also does not drive the game in any mechanical way. Like, or does it? I don't, that's, this is the thing that I'm not certain about. What are your thoughts on that? Like if something is related to the story of a game, but isn't necessary in the playing of the game. I don't usually think of that as flavor text because I think of flavor text as like the italicized text <laughs> usually, but but I also mention like the rule books as flavor text, which also isn't right. the italicized text. And you could um, you could play Betrayal and never read that text and it would the game would still yeah, play the true. same. Yeah, but but then there are like all the cards in uh, Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror have text that tells you what's going on. And you can just skip that and say, oh, you need to roll for this this skill point and see what you get instead of reading the part. But yeah, you know what's <laughs> funny? We actually did that Wait, really? recently when we were playing one of the escape room games that we played remotely recently. All I know is there were, okay, there were instructions that needed to be given and not all of the text that was part of the instructions actually mattered. And I found myself skipping over the stuff that wasn't, okay, just go up to or whatever. And I think it was you and I played, but maybe not. I don't know. I can't remember at all at this point. My brain is mush. But I was skipping over the flavor text in service of the mechanism. And that's not Mm -hmm. something I typically do, but I think I was just kind of excited to solve the puzzle of whatever this thing yeah, was that with, I can't remember. <laughs> with escape room games, if it's like that, then I usually like skip through because you're trying to go for speed too. So. Right, they're often time-based. Yeah. So that's another point of interest where like if a game has a timed mechanism, flavor text can get in the way of that. Yeah. Okay, well, this has been <laughs> a very fascinating discussion that I think yeah. we could go on and on and on about. We've missed a whole bunch of things. What I would love to see from our listeners, please, 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 Take a picture of a card or a rule book or a game that has really good flavor text in it and uh, tweet it at us or put it put it in our BGG guild in the thread for this episode. I would love to see great examples of flavor text that are funny or amusing or interesting, something that you learned. Even if they're ones that we mentioned here, feel free to share them because I'm sure our listeners would love to see some of these really great examples of flavor text. And I want to give a shout out to the publishers and designers and writers who work on these games who put a lot of effort into text that often does not technically need to be there, but really creates moments of joy in board games, at least for me. The etymology segment is back, everybody. And for this episode, we're going to look at the origins of the word flavor. 
The English noun flavor dates back to the 1300s when it meant a smell or odor, usually a pleasing one. It can be traced back to the old French word flower, which meant smell, odor, act of smelling, or sense of smell. That word is likely to have come from the vulgar Latin word flator, which was used to mean odor, but literally translated as that which blows. <laughs> or in classical Latin, blower. The definition taste or savor came about in the late 17th century and was previously described as the element in taste which depends on the sense of smell. So that's why the smell and taste connection happened. If you trace the word all the way back to its Proto-Indo-European root, which I cannot pronounce, uh, it is the four letters B-H-L-E, you will find that that root was the origin of a lot of other interesting words, including the word flatulence. <laughs> so yes, Flavor and flatulence have the same roots. Did I just ruin the next thing you're going to eat? Maybe. Whoopsie. Sorry about it. I guess. I mean, I mean, when when it goes out, there's a little bit of flavor to it. I guess. Like... <laughs> and that's it for this week's board game blitz. Visit our website boardgameblitz.com for video and blog content, as well as to get links to all our social media pages. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. If you missed the Kickstarter campaign for Ragnarok, never fear, just head to greyfoxgames.com to learn how you can still get a copy of this abstract strategy game from the designer of Santorini. Grey Fox Games, quality games cleverly crafted. Join the Blitzketeer community on Discord by following the link in the show notes. You can support the show by leaving us a rating and review on your podcast provider. And if you want behind-the-scenes access and an invite to our private Slack channel, visit patreon.com slash boardgameblitz. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Marr. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Board Game Blitz is part of the Dice Tower Network. Until next time, this board game, I don't know anything about it. It's too dry a year I wish that it would just give me a lot more flavor in the theme. Bye, everyone. Bye. The etymology? <laughs> Good start! We forgot how to say etymology. Etymology's gone because go Crystal can't say etymology anymore. <laughs>